Welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I got a to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Today on the podcast, I am joined by my producer, Jay. Hello, I'm the producer, Jay. Yo, what up? (laughs) We also have his sidekick, Adam, who asked probably the best question in his whole career on this episode. Adam, unmute yourself. And then you muted him. How about you unmute him? I Adam, Adam, unmute yourself and respond. <laughs> uh, is he even here? Is he? Did he leave after he I muted him? I would have left after you muted me too. Well, uh, with the way he jumped in on uh, what was Ari was question. saying, he had a good question. He had one good question. Lightning doesn't strike twice. Adam, <laughs> speak now or forever hold your peace. Wow. I'm ashamed. All right. Backing me up, as usual, my best of friends, my co-hosts, Chris, Mikey. Hey, I'm here. How's Mikey doing? Mikey is uh, contemplating life right now. uh, Are you guys just sitting in this Zoom meeting and not even participating? (laughs) Is it literally just me, Chris, and Jay? Zero percent. They Probably. have zero respect. Thanks for listening to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, folks. Enjoy this episode and please support us on Patreon. At the beginning, this explosion of Saturn connecting to the sun creates the collinear configuration that we're going to talk about very rapidly and creates several gas giants, not just Jupiter, but Venus and possibly Uranus, Neptune, and ninth planet which some people call Nibiru essentially the Birkeland current that's flowing through all the planets is so strong that it's forcing them into that orbit we don't have currents like that today because the planets today are uh, connected in non-linear array this collinear configuration is a direct linear connection that's north to south pole like a battery They weren't familiar with iron. They hadn't seen it before. It was deep inside mountains. And suddenly it was falling to the ground. It wasn't just falling to the ground. It was liquefying in the the sky. 
due to the lightning bolts. It was crashing to the earth as frozen metal, creating, you know, bizarre alien shapes, and again, triggering the imagination of humans. So this Prometheus event gave humans electricity, gave humans the Iron Age. tell you that much. You can't build a ship that goes into space as soon as you try to go through the Earth electromagnetic field. The ship will endure that kind of destructive electrical influence that I mentioned earlier. And even if you're built for it, I'll give you one other clue here. Humans are kept alive by the Earth itself. Today on the show, we have Ari Asselin. He has the amazing website ParadigmThreat.net. And he was on a very recent episode of the Higher Side Chats that I listened to. And I immediately got in touch with him. I checked out his website. I thought it was great. Today, we're honored to have him with us. Ari, how are you? Hey, doing pretty good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah, man. Like I said, I was really impressed by everything you shared on the Higher Side Chats. And then when I investigated further, I found you're really doing a good job of laying this stuff out piece by piece on your website. And I think that's really important for people to get a visual framework to wrap some of these, you know, more metaphysical esoteric ideas around, you know, sometimes you hear all of these dates and it's hard to visualize, visualize, you know, how they chronologically fall on the timeline and you're doing it, man. I think that's really important. So where does this all start for you? How did you get interested in this? What was like the first eye opener that led you down this path? Well, that's very easy. <clears throat> it's going to be a David Talbot. Um, for whatever reason, I haven't heard about him until about, say, four, five years ago, when I first heard about his Saturn myth book. But more importantly, I first saw the Remembering the End of the World documentary that he released in, I think, 94 or 5, 95. Um, it's available online and the link's on my, my website. This uh, documentary is the one that blew me away because aside from the fact that he made the archetype connections between all of the various civilizations throughout history that never met, which is a very important connection to make. He also showed a visual demonstration of it. It was a very crude CGI, but I was looking at it and I was like, wait a second, this makes a lot of sense because I'm seeing it. These archetypes are coming to life and I'm seeing how each one is constructed, how they all saw it, they all wrote it down. And we're just you know trying to piece it all together now with all of these things no longer in the sky, of course. So yeah. Yeah, and this subject is is really, you know, it sounds a little lofty. You know, you get into like the astronomy, the astrotheology stuff. It's all very in its own field, you know. And I, I remember reading this really small pamphlet that I ordered online called like The Tale of Planet X or something. And it was, <laughs> nice. this, and it was basically about Marduk, right? This planet Marduk um, right. and how it was formed through a sort of collision that also resulted in the creation of our asteroid belt. So when I learned more about what you were talking about with Saturn, it really put this whole thing into perspective a little bit more like cosmology as we're being told is not quite what it is. And there's one book in particular that I remember reading 
that really opened my eyes to all this stuff called the secret history of the world. And it starts by the author kind of breaking down some of the symbolism in Genesis, right? So mm, yeah. this cosmology stuff is very interesting. And then you go to the Saturn stuff and how we have, you know, the black cube of Saturn worshipers. We have Mecca, which is a black cube. We have all of the synchronistic symbolistic events that are just all stacking up together perfectly right so right. where does where does this start how do you explain uh the beginning of the solar system you know as concisely and maybe simply as possible like totally. was was it saturn that that was the first sun or the sun came first how, how exactly does that start well, it sort of is like a chicken versus chicken and the egg kind of thing. And, you know, you never know which comes first because they both come first, right? Right before I get into that, uh, you mentioned, you know, how you notice they seem to be hiding the uh, origin story from Earth from us for some reason. And <clears throat> I guess the other thing that really kind of triggered my my interest before I ever heard about this, sort of in the same order that you received all this information, was by seeing a controlled opposition website that said so-and-so like Nibiru or whatever is going to come and cackles them. Um, in the meantime, all of the other content on the website was very intriguing. The idea that asteroids have a magnetic pull on the Earth. I've never heard of these things before. So, of course, I bought it into the whole Nibiru myth for a while until I realized in 2014 it's not going to happen. And then um, I discovered eventually Talbot's video. So to get into the, the, um, the creation myth, the creation myth is sort of when memory starts for, the, for Earth. It's when we're able to start recording memories, we have a reason to have memories. But you ask before that, what actually starts the process? Is it the sun? Is it the planets? Um, I, I only have speculated on this part, and I've read a lot of um, speculations by other authors. I'm not author, but speculators. And I've um, come to the idea that a sun's field is sort of like an empty house or a hotel. And uh, while it's empty, somebody's going to come and fill it in. And while it's full, nobody else can use that space. It might seem like there's a great deal of free, empty space in our solar system. But actually, you want to imagine that each planet's magnetosphere stretches out many hundreds of times larger than its width. This is true, and NASA says the same thing. And these magnetospheres sort of represent an energy level of orbit that bump up against each other, and that there is really no space in our solar system for more planets. This is full. Our solar system is sort of full. So uh, I would say what starts the whole process off is that for whatever reason, this sun is now available to um, to spawn new life, to attract new planets. And so big question is, well, where do all these planets come from? Um, so the uniformitarian theory that we were taught in school says um, the planets and suns all form together through accretion over billions of years. Um, if that's not the case, if there's another alternate, because everyone's aware of that theory, and now here's the other one. If plants are formed by some other means, then we have to decide where, where they actually get formed. So the first process to form a planet happens within a sun. Um, this is according to uh, Wallace Thornhill. Um, he believes that suns are hollow, all plants are hollow, and that the coronasphere of the sun is actually where all of the fusion reactions occur, um, where the energy light comes from, and where the light elements, hydrogen, helium, are converted over into um, uh, heavy elements like iron. At that point, <clears throat> iron <clears throat> will uh, build up in the, the chronosphere, get heavy, get cold, and it'll sink inside the sun, build up within the sun, 
establish a charge, and eventually be spit out of the sun. Now, I have a big kind of clue as to this being the case, based on a video that I saw 10 years ago, which showed, showed this big spherical mass being painfully slowly ejected from the sun. It seemed to even have an umbilical line on it. If you hunt that video, it's on my website, um, you can see that people are still confused as to what they're seeing. Online, uh, they mostly say, uh, on websites, they mostly say, this is um, a visual effect. It's not what you think it is. It's a long string of uh, Brooklyn current stretching out towards the camera. But the simplest explanation is that is a, a video of a planet being born. So that's how planets get born. They're born in the suns. That's so interesting, man. I think the the symbology surrounding this stuff is so shrouded that we often forget that these gods are represented as planets, right? So right. going back to the more like origins and Saturn and Kronos, right? So we have, from what I read on your website, this positively charged sun, right? And at some right. point, negatively charged brown dwarf Saturn rolls in the frame. And just like you said, the solar system must have had room for it, right? Because it right. comes in it receives this, you know, this interaction takes place and, and energy rushes into Saturn and lights it up. Now, can you explain a little bit more about that and how that fits into what you're just describing? Absolutely. Um, Saturn first has to capture a bunch of protoplanets. These are the ones that uh, are created by suns and spit out by the sun. So Saturn isn't really um, creating them, but is capturing them. And now what makes the brown dwarf? Essentially, you got layers of, of plasma spheres. And they're plasma rather than magnetospheres because they actually have a dense um, mass to them as well as energy. They're in plasma state. And as they are uh, charged, each layer is oppositely charged to the edge of the, of the next layer. And as a result of this, you have this extremely, uh, let's just say safe, kind of a womb-like environment for planets within this uh, dim brown dwarf that sort of slowly gobbles up protoplanets, it actually provides sort of a dim light to those planets um, and some energy, the basis for life. But that life is not like this life, you know, today where, you know, you're outside in the beach with the sun doing a barbecue. We have a very kind of catalytic life on, on earth here. We're talking about extremely dim life that does not move around, does not eat, does not fight, not kind of, nothing like that. That sort of seedling, planet seedling within the brown dwarf Saturn will, will spring to life if it's connected to a power source. So brown dwarf inevitably finds its way into the sun's field and gets stuck there. Some authors like Janelle Cook believe that Saturn's brown dwarf does not get stuck. It actually um, makes contact with the sun and rotates over and over, over millions or billions of years. That's you know because they're trying to conflate um, even the formatarian cosmology with um, Saturnian, but I believe that it's more like a a torpedo. Uh, the entire brown dwarf heads straight for the sun. It crashes into it and it stalls, and it, and it ignites, and explodes into a much bigger plasma field. It continues to rotate around the sun, but that's only because the entire sun's field is always rotating. The plasma fields set off by Saturn is so big and massive that it actually becomes a whole other planet gas giant, Jupiter. This is still debated, whether or not Jupiter was there at the beginning, whether or not Jupiter was another planet that got caught, or whether or not Jupiter came from Saturn, and at the same time, Venus coming from Saturn. So 
at the beginning, this explosion of Saturn connecting to the sun creates the collinear configuration that we're going to talk about very rapidly and creates several gas giants, not just Jupiter, but Venus and possibly Uranus, Neptune, and the ninth planet, which some people call Nibiru. So there's your configuration of planets. Essentially, the first memory is the memory of the collinear configuration forming. And based on Jeanneau Cook's timeline here, uh, I'm <clears throat> using the date of 4077 BCE for the Common Era. This is when Saturn and Sun connect. Um, you got depictions of this pillar, this mountain that um, reaches from Earth into the sky. And in the sky, you see a, a circle. Um, let me pull up an image here. Okay, Northern Hemisphere configuration. I upload this new uh, meme online. The, what you'd see if you're standing anywhere from Earth, you would see a cosmic mountain or a stream of uh, energy, depending on whether Mars is far away or whether it's close. And let's say it's far away, you'd see Mars in the very center of the planet Saturn. You'd see Venus in between planet, uh, uh, Saturn and Mars. This is hard to visualize, of course, unless you've seen some of these pictures online or you've seen uh, Talbot's video. Once you see this video, it all makes sense. Um, Mars is actually oscillating between Saturn and Earth, creating the look of a cosmic mountain or pillar or stairway to heaven, Jacob's ladder, tree of life, a couple other things in mythology. Um, I have one more here. Um, Tower of Babel, even. Yeah, correct. I always forget that one. This is also the first Tower of Babel. So now, the at this point in time, mm -hmm. you know, trying to visualize this, is this in the like sort of like an eclipse where all the uh, celestial bodies are lined up or is this a constant sight in the sky where the orbit was different as than what we understand orbit to be now with our 365 days was there a difference in how the planets were moving or was this just one singular event that occurred over a, a certain period of time because i see the how you have these planets lined up here going from the sun Jupiter, Saturn, and, and so on, right? So when you say right. Mars is oscillating, you have to kind of imagine your perspective from Earth looking out towards these celestial bodies kind of lined up, right? That's correct. And the reason that they're in an exact straight line is because essentially the Birkeland current that's flowing through all the planets is so strong that it's forcing them into that orbit. We don't have currents like that today because the planets today are uh, connected in nonlinear array. This collinear configuration is a direct linear connection. That's north to south pole, like a battery. Um, if you connect batteries from north to south pole, you essentially have an increase in, um, let's see if I get this right now, increase in amplitude and, no, sorry, increase in voltage. And if you connect batteries in series, you get an increase in amplitude. So um, I think I got that backwards. The point is in the collinear configuration, the amplitude was the increase. And this flow was so strong, it kept the plants in a perfect straight line. It also provided each planet with an abundant energy that is high in excess of anything that we experience today. This energy is safe because it's flowing through the planets, each planet buffering that energy, making it safer. And when it finally reaches the Earth, it's, um, well, it's what the uh, Old Testament called manna. Essentially, is an energy that keeps you alive, uh, healthy, immortal, um, makes it so you don't have to hunt for food or anything like that. It's something we can't really imagine today. It's unimaginable, but this is precisely what the, the Old Testaments, all of them, 
have described. Uh, the Hindu myth, of course, um, the Chinese myth of the Golden Age are all the same, and we can't really you know, relate to them today. As you said, the orbit was different as well. The orbit was was faster than today, 365.24 orbit of Earth. Today is actually way slower than what it was then, 225-day orbit. Now, why would all of those planets in a big, heavy configuration be faster? Most people would say they would be slower. Um, this is an artifact of plasma physics. And to put it simply, plasma physics is the inversion of Newtonian physics. We have to sort of look at everything inverted. When it comes to orbits, the speed is not based on uh, inertia. It's based on the amount of energy flowing through it. Uh, the collinear configuration has an immense amount of energy, as I mentioned, and therefore the orbit was faster. Each year was 225 days. Now, as the configuration broke up over time, all the way until modern day, every jump in the breakup of the configuration would make the orbit slower. And this is because every jump would cause the system to take on less energy from the sun being less linear and so forth. So that one's kind of tricky to understand, but yeah, the, the years were shorter back then. 930 year period of the golden age was shorter than that. Uh, you, know, you can calculate it, it's like 500 and something of our current years long. So we're talking about a very brief period that was well-remembered and it sort of ended in a cataclysm. Every civilization agrees that it just ended and never came back. That age never returned. So that would be uh, 930 actual years, years of rotation around the sun, which they could detect back then. And 930 of those actual years, it ended in 3147 BEC. That's when sort of everyone agrees the golden age ended violently. Um, any questions so far? Yeah, Adam, if you have that question still, go for it. You sure? Go for yeah, it. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, you know, I don't know much about this particular topic, um, but you mentioned it. So I was just curious because I thought it was debunked and I, I yeah, you know, back when or whatever. I love that word. <laughs> but, but planet Nibiru? Nibiru, yeah. Is that actually confirmed? Is it still supposedly still out there? That's the easy answer. Uh, there's the Nibiru, and then there's the Nibiru cataclysm, right? The yeah. cataclysm is the impending myth cataclysm that Earth is about to be hit by this planet Nibiru. Um, to answer that question, we can actually get into the apocalyptic nature of all religions. Almost every religion says that the end of the world is coming. But the big secret here, and to answer this question too, is that all of these religions have been written, redacted in reverse from their original version. In their original version, they simply said, this is what we saw happen during creation. This, that, earthquakes, fire, brimstone, you name it. So in every event, in every testimony of every event in the past, um, it stays in the past. And Nibiru, which was a planet that was apparently visible in the past in the Southern hemisphere, had a big effect on people back then, but it disappeared into its final orbit in our solar system. Where is that orbit now? It's right behind uh, Neptune, apparently. Um, Here's the answer to Nibiru. Um, they're going to eventually find it there, and they should have found it a long time ago, and they did find it a long time ago. Here's why. If you look at the history of Uranus and Neptune, just go to Wikipedia and look at it, you'll find out that they didn't find Neptune for a while, but they found that Uranus was bumping in its orbit, and they couldn't figure out why. So they came up with these ideas, dark energy and so forth, 
long time ago, long before dark energy was popular. And they said some dark energy is pushing against Uranus. So they looked and looked and looked closely with amateur telescopes and found Neptune. They added it to the roster. This is in like the, the 40s or something. It was in the 20th century. And then people noticed, well, there's still a bump on Uranus and Neptune. So we should look for that ninth planet, right? And then the astronomy academia started shunning away from that. Oh, we're not going to find that ninth planet ever. Became a taboo subject. But I don't know the name of that planet. But in mythology, we actually do see a ninth planet in the origin story. And that planet is called Nibiru also. So I just have to suggest that the Nibiru cataclysm was somebody who has awareness of our real origin story, writing it in reverse, which is what they always do, and you know, scaring the hell out of us, making us think that this is actually impending when it all happened in the past. When you say bump, what do you mean like the Nibiru messing up the like planet's path, if you will? Like the... well, if I could jump in, I mean, considering what he said t towards the beginning, uh, I would imagine he means that the magnetospheres are bumping against each other. Am I right, Correct. Ari? Yeah, you got so, in the orbit. So you too. physically do not have to even, like, you, you wouldn't see the planets physically colliding because their magnetic spheres are touching each other way before right. the physical bodies could ever touch. So, right. so Do you think that Nibiru is... Uh, you know, when we finally find find it, is it going to be like a gaseous planet, or is it going to be some sort of solid mass? Totally. Let me answer that question with uh, with a little bit of origin story here. Um, in the northern hemisphere, which I described, yeah, those planets, you know, Mars, Venus, uh, Saturn, behind a Jupiter. The rest of the planets are in the southern hemisphere. Now, I'm sort of speculating on this part because the author, who I've gotten most of the information about the southern hemisphere, himself does not believe. Let's see what his name. Well, has a name here. The Z pinch guy does not himself believe in Saturnian cosmology being a reliable source and prefers to stick to modern, uh, I'm sorry, establishment physics to explain all these myths. So he explained the stickman figure in the Southern Hemisphere as a Brooklyn current that people saw in mythology and put into a stickman figure throughout America, China, Mu continent when it existed. Um, people didn't know what to make of the stickman figure and other forms of it. Um, and still it's hotly debated today. But considering that we're talking about a configuration with um, with all the plants in there, there has to have been plants behind the Earth. The Earth could not have been the end of the configuration or it would have endured a much harsher conduction of energy. It would not have a buffer, like I mentioned before. So those planets on the Southern Hemisphere made up three shapes. And we actually know that two of them were Uranus and Neptune. So we can pretty much surmise that that third final planet is also a gas giant because it was part of the same kind of stickman figure that was a big plasmoid that changed shape many times and sort of came back into the into the figure. When you're talking about uh, the southern hemisphere, is that the southern hemisphere of Saturn? This would be below Earth, the southern hemisphere of Earth, which was locked in place in the collinear configuration. In the northern hemisphere, you had the sun itself, then Jupiter, then Saturn, Mercury, Venus, Earth, sorry, Mercury, Venus, Mars, and then we, Earth, we're uh, Midgard. We're here in the middle of the collinear configuration. We're locked in there. We can't move. Below us, Uranus, Neptune, Nibiru, and, you know, space behind that. So that is the collinear configuration. And this collinear configuration can be seen or likened to the tree of life. Am I right? That's correct. So 
going back to where we were before Adam jumped in with that really good question, Adam, I mean, yeah. points to you, buddy, because that's the Excellent. first great question of uh, your your career here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy <laughs> podcast. I'm trying. I'm learning. Jay, write that one down, all right? Uh, so <laughs> back to where we were with this kind of golden age, right? Some remember it as the Garden of Eden and the Christian, but there was other cultures who were talking about this same period of time with very similar aspects. And you actually mentioned this plasmoidal energy as the mana that was spoken of in the Bible. I think that really fits into some of the more esoteric things I've read in theosophy and some channelings and really interesting stuff. So are you saying now that Nibiru exploding had something or colliding had something to do this cataclysm that they kind of retrofitted for the new you know apocalypse uh hmm. was that what brought the golden age to an end what i would suggest caused the breakup since i haven't seen any speculation on the whys yet essentially got a configuration that was rapidly put together by a lot of energy flowing from the sun so that is not a stable configuration even though it lasted for 930 years it did keep changing and uh, an example of change would be giants. Um, the idea is that life forms that exist on certain realms that had high energy would become way larger than those that existed in low energy realms. So some realms had giants and some had regular sized people. Um, that is an example of how uneven the energy was flowing through the plants. So the end of it would be to describe each planet. Each planet has the same kind of structure as the gas giant Saturn, you have a concentric circle, a hollow, hollow structure with concentric circles in it. Each circle, as I mentioned, is oppositely charged from the surface of the opposite opposing sphere, and each body builds up charge over time. Same thing you'll get in a capacitor in a, in a circuit board. They'll build up uh, charge to a certain point, and then it gets full. You can't, uh, you can't fill up anymore, or it will explode, actually. Um, so a planet, instead of exploding, it gets larger itself. Each planet got larger. The shells got larger. Separations between them. They built up energy until um, the energy no longer flowed evenly through the configuration. Each planet now became a resistor. It was each each uh, sphere was becoming too complicated with its negative positive negative kind of uh, layering. It wouldn't receive charge steadily anymore. So to to end the configuration, essentially, what happened was it got too full, uh, too full of energy, too full of capacitance, and became unstable. Now, the instability didn't really end the configuration. It just brought it into the next level of stability, nonlinear configurations. And after the configuration came apart, all the planets scattered. However, the years did not get longer just yet and go to our current year. Something else happened in between. This in-between period, I'll just tell you right now, is a big part of my speculation. Uh, I haven't found many authors that are willing to talk about what they think was going on here after the collinear configuration broke up, but before our current stable final orbits. If you look at plasma physics, you understand the bodies floating in space are, op are, are operating on, on positive and negative directional charges. They are then the most likely next uh, orbit is going to be a nonlinear orbit that's close together. Planets that are close together that are orbiting um, in a small circle, and that small circle is orbiting the sun itself. That would be the next phase after the first breakup. That would be the second configuration. This configuration 
is also in mythology, which is why I speculate on this. Um, the, the most obvious version of this will be King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. That would be Galfridian Galf Arthurian legend, you know, the, the first versions of it. In this legend, essentially, you have King Arthur, the biggest, the king, sorry, the biggest guy around, and that would be Jupiter. Jupiter is constantly considered the king, the messiah, the savior within mythology after the golden age. He's also Zeus, Zeus, uh, that kind of person, is, that deity is always associated with, with saving, whereas Kronos, the existing one, was associated with creation and the original creator and, and Cyrus, those kind of deities. So to distinguish, Zeus is sort of a sub-logos to Kronos in, the, in their opinion, and or, or King Arthur, Zeus, whichever archetype you choose, he was still the biggest god around. He was the king. Everyone else was smaller than him. The next biggest guy around, Mars, which was still in our orbit, had a, had a very busy history in mythology. He got, had a lot of action. Hercules traveled you know, across the world, went into the underworld, came back, that kind of thing. And yet Mars was never considered greater than Jupiter. Therefore, Mars in Arthurian legend is Lancelot, the greatest knight, but not on equal terms with the king. However, the king is seated at a round table with all of his knights, rather than seated on top of a mountain like the previous deity, the previous creator god was. So therefore, this new deity was considered an equal, even though he was the king. And that's where the entire King Arthur come, uh, round, Knights of the Round Table legends comes from. The king is sitting with the rest of the knights, and the greatest knight, um, Lancelot, eventually um, becomes his undoing. I love Let's that see. connection. That's that's fantastic. That's I a good. That's a great way to lay it out too. Like, I don't know. It's perfect. Well, and Jay, you got to consider that this is the way that information was conveyed throughout time with these kind of mythological and symbolical allegories overlaid, so that they can kind of hide the the deeper meaning. And we kind of skipped over uh, something. Go for I it, have, Jay. Uh, yeah, I have a question. Maybe sure. This entire time, I'm just thinking about Roman Empire and Saturnalia. Did, did like everyone know about this? Was this well? And that kind of leads me into my question of what we skipped over because you see, Saturn, right, was this unifying force bringing all the planets in this linear configuration. And when things were thrown into non linear configuration, we have Jupiter kind of balancing right. things out is that right what was jupiter doing balancing the energy of the cosmos and to jay's question were the common folks aware of this kind of uh what was going on in the sky well we didn't really have like a central authority back then but we did have and i did skip this part the makings of what people call today the deep state yes. the deep state essentially is people who hide deep within culture, hidden places of the earth, technology, you name it, and, and have a need to sort of control others to, to wrap humanity around their, their authority for, for various reasons. They're not necessarily bad people, but the way that the origin story went down with the fall of Atlantis, um, the, they, um, the makings of the deep state, they took it pretty hard. And their version, their perspective of all of this is the one that we actually hear today in all of the redacted versions of the Bible, Torah, Quran. Um, and this perspective is actually well known to be, um, uh, okay, sorry, I'll say the Old Testament perspective is well known. It tends to be materialistic, tends to be a, a sort of a God that punishes its creation over and over, seems to have 
lack of sympathy, but then cho chooses certain people over and over, like say King David, to just be terrible people and do whatever they want and say, sorry, I got this guy. You know, we, we all know what to make of these stories. Um, what we make of them is actually, it's their perspective. They, they took um, the fall of creation pretty hard and they actually did think that their God was punishing them all, all the way up till today. They want us to believe the same thing, that there is an invisible God there that's punishing us for our so-called sins. But to get aside from that, the regular people of earth didn't have any central authority. They um, sometimes subjected to the rule of that deep state, but ultimately they had the ability to write down the stories for themselves uh, through various means, not just through paper, but through advanced technology. Some people are aware that there was some advanced technology back then. It was also very simple technology. We're basically talking about uh, gems and crystals, emeralds, um, which people will soon discover have uh, the potential to store information in an unlimited fashion. Oh, look at that. You got one. Yep. That's not uh, the only one he's got. <laughs> oh, I believe it. Uh, these things are, are uh, will be called infinitely indexed databases because they'll be able to stream an infinitely infinite amount of data, infinite resolution. Um, so anyway, that's how they had that's how they had technology back in the day. They would either touch these things, they're more telepathic, and record their information, or they would use you know more sophisticated means. But they recorded the origin story, their family history, all the way up until modern day. These things actually did exist. Um, we've seen a great deal of redaction in the last 900 years of indigenous cultures around the world. Every culture seemed to have an intact origin story. They weren't missing pieces. They just disagreed as to what it all really meant. Um, a lot of them, for example, did not believe that these deities had any interest in us, that they were punishing us or were trying to command us with commandments and so forth. So those versions, the ones with the punishing God, the commandments, the sin, and the um, all that, that's, um, that's the deep state perspective. Um, they control themselves with it. They control us with it. And yeah, we're not really going to get into that. This, this one, are we? <laughs> the deep state, that's in a whole other conversation. Well, um, yeah, I mean, that just gives me a great big opportunity to ask you to come back in the future. But yeah, man, definitely, please, yeah. <laughs> definitely don't want to stray too far away from the timeline and the Saturn stuff. But yeah, that, that kind of illustrates how, you know, we had this big change in civilization. Now we're starting to see with like the work of Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson that this is being geologically recorded as to have happened this kind of uh flood that probably submerged what was Atlantis and Lemuria right. and all these different coastal regions of the continents that we're on today that were populated. Obviously, humans are bound to build on the coast, right? We're dependent on uh, water for a lot of the things that we rely on. But, you know, back to the gods, we kind of have this idea of gods like oh well people before christianity before judaism they just thought like you know there was a god for fire and a god for water and you know mm -hmm. this is the kind of storybook childish view that they give us in school like oh yeah they just you know they didn't understand science so they just thought like zeus created lightning and but when you go back into the more esoteric stuff you realize that lightning and all these different natural forces that were happening on the planet you know a lightning storm or an earthquake 
this was quite literally because of the planet's influence on each other, right? So can we get into oh, yeah. a little bit of that and kind of, uh, and, and why we have these associations in our myths? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the uh, nonlinear orbit period, which would essentially be the end of the golden age, 3147 BCE, all the way up until 686 BCE, uh, sorry, 684, when the official date of cataclysm ends as a result of there being no more events after that date. Um, several civilizations have recorded that date as the end, um, even though we we um, we record as 684, they record as zero, the date when we can you know reset the calendars. So let's go back. That entire period had all of the cataclysm related to the god Pantheon. Uh, before that period, the Golden Age, people mostly associated there being one god, the creator one, the one that you see in the sky, the one that's made up of several figures, of course, but those figures are all together still. And during the nonlinear configuration, all those figures came apart. Osiris broke apart, and his body was you know, broken into pieces and buried. That's what the myth says. Um, those pieces that were apart represent a pantheon of gods that, that had a very rich history, um, long, deep, you name it, had the craziest stories, stories that we don't understand if we put them in human terms. Um, and finally, these stories really, really mattered to us on the ground back then. This is one key aspect that uh, some mythologists skip. They assume that a lot of mythology was just, you know, art forms or something. But when we talk about electricity or the advent of technology or the Prometheus, for example, giving humans fire representing technology, we're talking about actual events. These events were recorded and they really mattered. So I'll get into why. Um, the first reason is Jupiter represented stability and was a stabilizing force and people could see that. So they, could, they could feel when Jupiter was present, things were calm. It, it kind of shined over a period of abundance. In the Arthurian legend, again, King Arthur shows up and everything is great. But then something happens and the influence of Jupiter is waning. Um, over hundreds of years, um, the nonlinear configuration continues to, to get bigger and bigger as a circle. The planets are just drifting further apart. Um, the bigger planets, Jupiter, the gas giants, um, more or less stay in a stable orbit, but the smaller ones are influenced by this, this gap in, in violent ways. They become violent, they, be, they hit on each other. Venus, Mars, and Earth um, attain major cataclysms. Um, then what happens? Um, Jupiter shows up again, and the planets calm down. So uh, kind of you know going over a lot of periods here, a lot of different events, but this keeps happening. Jupiter shows up again, and they're like, yes, the Savior has shown up. You know, we're all about to get killed, and this thing happens. So they remember these moments where the king on the mountain has come back to the throne, or uh, you know, the Messiah has arisen from the cave. Um, th these myths exist again in all civilizations, Egyptian, Greek, and of course Christian. So uh, as Jupiter returns as the Messiah, oh yeah, why is Jupiter on the mountain? It's because as Jupiter is unstable, a giant, a gas giant that's unstable in a nonlinear configuration, it has an outpouring on its north and south pole, especially on its south pole of plasma. This outpouring is actually so big that it extends below the horizon and underneath all of the planets. It's, um, it's part of the stabilizing force Jupiter is providing to the small nonlinear configuration. 
But in all mythologies, they basically see this king on the mountain on a huge coma tail mountain on the horizon. So this becomes Moses in the burning bush in the Mayan Chilam Balam, uh, essentially any, uh, uh, also in a, in a Spanish mythology, you have, uh, I'm sorry, in Mexican mythology, you have Quetzalcoatl. Um, and that's the next form of Quetzalcoatl. It changes into on, a, on top of a mountain and catches on fire. So, so these events, everybody saw them and they mattered because there was intervention on, on earth here on the grounds. You know, you would either be attacked by a planet and then saved by another planet. Uh, the civilizations gave these plants names. Uh, the names, of course, changed over times, but the archetypes all match up to the same kind of intervention. Um, there are other events which um, are harder to explain. For example, like when Kronos gobbled up all of its children and spit them out. Um, this happens at the beginning of the cataclysmic period. Uh, this was Saturn, which was cast from the collinear uh, configuration, the initial Golden Age configuration. It, of course, had a lot of charge and a lot of influence. It had the ability to gobble up plants, so it did so again. And people actually witnessed plants being gobbled up into Saturn and then later on being spit out again. This you know, became a mythology. Um, I forget exactly which story, but I'm sure you've heard of that one. Of course, also became uh, the Beowulf story. Beowulf, the book they made right. you read in English class. Everybody right. seemed to read that one in English class. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, and we had no idea what was going on. Correction, <laughs> I never read it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh. This this uh, epic, epic poem has been redacted, of course, and the entire story spans the entire history of Earth from creation to modern day, which is why it doesn't make sense if you consider it a short story in a short time period. But one of the weird parts in the story, when uh, Grendel, which is apparently represented by Venus, has his arm torn off at the shoulder, this essentially is something that everyone saw happen to Venus, the planet. It was connected by an umbilical plasma connection to Saturn since its creation. And that, that connection has never been severed until the moment when everyone saw it sever. And then Venus became its own entity after that. So these stories, are they make no sense today because we can't imagine, you know, these weird creatures and stuff doing these weird events. Uh, but planets, we actually can. Planets are not alive. They're simply um, they're engaged in chemical reactions, essentially, electric chemical reactions. Let's move ahead to the end of the cataclysmic period. Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, this was an event where five cities on a plane were all destroyed at once by a huge column of fire from the sky, fire and brimstone. And you got two perspectives on the story. Um, one perspective is, you know, this is what uh, this is what Mars always does when it comes into contact with Earth, and people should prepare for it and not build, you know, in in way open places like the plane. That's what that's what regular people thought. Uh, deep state people said God's punishing us again. But they couldn't figure out why this time. They're like, what was so bad about the Sodom and Gomorrah city and the other two uh, that got destroyed? What was God trying to tell us? They actually had to bend over backwards to come up with reasons. And um, the reasons that we see in the, in the current version of the Bible, going back to the King James Version, have nothing to do with the actual story. They have only to do with the mindset of the people that wrote those stories. These are things that these people are obsessed with in their modern day, um, you know, sodomy and so forth. But they have no place in this story. The story has nothing to do with that. The story was completely natural. There's a planetary alignment with Mars and Mercury. Mars would be on one side of Earth, Mercury on the other side. This causing 
an, a, an energetic connection from the sun to pass through all the planets. Um, the planets are still close to each other, making these kinds of connections possible. And of course, this is enough to destroy um, the cities that are exposed on a plane. Um, some people back then would suggest caves would be the safest place to live in light of the cataclysms. As it turns out, caves are also electrical bodies in the Earth. Caves are initially generated by electrical currents passing through the Earth's surface, allegedly, according to plasma uh, physics theory. Um, and therefore, in highly electrical events, caves are not safe either. There is really nothing they can do if Mars is showing up and is about to commit an electrical storm on the surface of Earth. You have to figure out how to protect yourself from electricity. So the story in 18, I'm sorry, 806 to 687 BCE is the Prometheus story. This is becoming my favorite story because I really understand how this story jumpstarted everything else today, modern day, the whole fight we're in today. It's like the earliest one that actually mattered. Everything before this story was mostly cataclysm. But in this period, in 119 years, Mars made nine encounters with Earth. Every time it would create a lightning storm, every time there'd be nowhere that would be safe. Um, they would, the humans that survived this event had to figure out how electricity works. Um, with each encounter, they sort of saw the energy flowing from the sky directly onto the Earth, conducting to the highest points, creating plateaus, mesas, craters, going into the caves, they could see electrical in its raw form. And they got a pretty good dose of how electricity worked just by that. In the time until the next encounter, they had a few years to plan, they decided, let's build some structures. They built cathedrals, all of the original cathedrals. Anything that is considered a mosque today or a temple was actually one of these cathedrals in the, in the first place. Why do I call them that? Because cathedral has the word cathode in it. That means that cathedrals have some kind of electrical property to them. Um, this is not accepted today, but you can see it right there in the word that um, there's something cathode about them. The anode, where's the anode? It's on Mars. And as Mars is providing energy to Earth, the cathode that we're building here on the ground has to protect us from that electricity. So these cathedrals were essentially sanctuaries from lightning. Of course, we know that they're sanctuaries, right? Everyone says that. They're not sanctuaries today. You know, I can't, you can't hide in a, in a church. But um, back then, it made all the sense in the world that everyone had to. So um, the Prometheus story essentially is this period of heavy cataclysm, but also humans learning all about everything they need to know for the future. Electricity specifically, but that's everything else. Electricity providing energy to towns. Electricity also jumpstarts other things like healthcare. Uh, even immortality, if they're willing to unleash that technology, all of it, it's all being discovered in this event, this Prometheus event. However, there's another aspect to the story that's equally as important to the electricity, and that's the Iron Age. The Iron Age started on this period too, or according to Wikipedia, started in 500 BC. And of course, I speculate, I've heard 2000 BC. The Iron Age started with the last event of Prometheus. In this time, when Mars was part of our nonlinear orbit, it was very unstable, and it was called by some authors Priori Mars. This is because it was bigger than it currently is. It had an, <clears throat> it had an extra shell to it. Um, this extra shell to Mars, this outer shell, was very unstable. It actually never formed a solid shell. It would constantly be floating chunks of massive rocks in 
orbit of, of Mars held in place by the opposing shell fields, as I mentioned before. Uh, but the final shell, the outer shell, was unstable because it would break up every time Mars got close to another object, especially Earth. If Mars got close to Earth, the shell would break up. It would be what caused the cosmic mountain to shear down onto the Earth's surface. It would also suck itself back up into Mars and recreate a kind of a unstable outer shell. This, this was the case from creation all the way to the final Prometheus event, 687 BC, when Mars loses that outer shell and cannot recombine it. What happens is Mars gets flung to its final orbit in our solar system. And in that free space, it doesn't have the ability to maintain its, its outer shell anymore. The outer shell literally bursts in all directions. Part of the shell becomes the asteroid fields. Other, part, uh, other parts of the shells fall to Earth. We see this story in Conan the Barbarian. We see the star metal falling to Earth and jump-starting uh, sword technology in the Iron Age. It doesn't have to be you know, star metal, but it just be iron. And the idea that they, didn't, they weren't familiar with iron, they hadn't seen it before, it was deep inside mountains, and suddenly it was falling to the ground. It wasn't just falling to the ground, it was liquefying in the, in the sky due to the lightning bolts. It was crashing to the Earth as frozen metal, creating you know, bizarre alien shapes, and again, triggering the imagination of humans. So this Prometheus event gave humans electricity, gave humans the Iron Age. It gave humans everything they needed to jumpstart an advanced technology, you know, health, healthy cities, and you, know, you name it. This event, and going forward, and the rest of humanity, is probably the most redacted part of all of this, is the part that they're not wanna, they don't want us to talk about. Because once we understand this, then we start to understand why they would keep all of this technology from us going forward. Why would they even come up with a plan? This plan is not a new plan. It's called Pandora's box in one mythology is. Pandora's box, of course, is a box containing usury, uh, mitral, greed, envy, hatred, pain, disease, hunger, poverty, war, death, right? All these things are to be unleashed from Pandora's box with hope remaining. That mythology is actually an inverse. What actually is the case is Pandora's box was open during creation. All of these things were experienced, including bad religions and sacrifice to, you know, Baal, Malak, all that kind of stuff. All of these things happened during the creation period. But after the Prometheus period, Pandora's box was closed. And the idea that somebody could rule all of us through these things was also closed. The, the story doesn't end with the box being open then, it ends with the box being closed then, and the fear that average people like you and me on the ground would have that someday they might actually try to take this technology from us. Why? Because they actually had experienced 2,000 years of people trying to do that to them already. This part of the story we skipped, but it's known as the, um, I call it the pyramidal empire, also known as the Egyptian empire. It's unmistakably a real slave empire that really enslaved people, mind-controlled, uh, attempted to force people into sacrifice, deity worship, idol worship, all of it. So they were familiar with these kinds of um, empires out there. They, they wanted to rule. And the Prometheus story literally tells us they're going to try to open Pandora's box again in the future. Now, so, this group, I, this group that you referred to right there, is this the same body of people that went into the deep state? Is this... 
the pyramidal empire. Yeah. Um, to get into that theory, uh, with the fall of Atlantis, the deep state is no longer the center of the world anymore. They're deep now, right? They're hidden. Um, they had to come out in some form. That is why they tried to create various religions, force people into uh, human sacrifice, animal sacrifice, just for the sake of controlling them. It took the deep state a long time to get this control. What they needed was what I call the pyramidal empire. The empire, um, the same empire as the Egyptian empire, which we all know had pyramids, but we don't know what the pyramids were for. We just assume that, you know, they're staples of their power and authority. But now um, we're actually aware of many theories that say these pyramids have an energetic structure to them and a lot of mysteries, so many mysteries and endless debate and over them. But let's just, let's just uh, assume that they are energetic. They may have been built for that reason in the first place. Why would anyone build a pyramid during the origin story times, during creation times? The answer is to reestablish the kind of energetic creation that they had in Atlantis, um, the one in, um, in the very center, uh, known as the tree of knowledge, where they kept all of their knowledge, all their technology, all their centralized authority. And above that center was the Brooklyn currents that stretched all the way up into the Saturnian collier configuration. So <clears throat> they lived at the center of that, and they considered that location to be the center of their authority. So when Atlantis fell, that, that location was lost. It became the North Pole or North Hole. They had to reestablish a center of authority somewhere on Earth. Where is the energetic locations now? Not the poles. They actually found that it's the equatorial zones that have all the energy um, the ley lines. Uh, it's very easy to find this stuff. You can either you know, telepaths can actually feel these things, but you can also use instruments to detect them. They found the ley lines and they built pyramids across them. Um, they, they knew what they were doing. They had all this technology settled from Atlantis and they were building um, energetic gates where energy constantly flowed. Uh, I wouldn't say constantly because there was a periodic element to them as the planets rotated, but they were aware of that, um, the periods and during those periods, they could do communication between um, uh, pyramids. This, again, is my speculation. I haven't seen anything saying this. Um, and they may have been able to teleport between locations as well, according to the Bifrost theory of, um, uh, yeah. Uh, however, um, I guess the, the biggest clue I've had to this one, because I know this one sounds like speculation. I won't go too, too much about the ability to teleport between pyramids, is um, that I actually found in Egyptian mythology, a wormhole depiction, which suggests that exactly that kind of technology was available at this time, the so-called boat of Ra, where Ra actually transported from one planet to another, was depicted as, as an instantaneous teleport in mythology. Um, I don't have many other clues to that. There's actually a lot of other reasons why these pyramids might be um, gateways. Um, qu quantum physics suggests that you cannot create or destroy energy energy uh, forms in it, into its um, into insulated uh, bubbles, essentially. And within those bubbles, you can push the bubble from one energetic um, quantum entanglement to the other side of it. This is because the energy isn't really going anywhere, isn't really shifting. It's sort of like a seesaw, it's just moving where it is. And, and therefore, if these gates exist, if, you know, for example, CERN is really a, a you know, a, you know, Stargate or whatever, then the idea is that they only work periodically. You have the plants have to be in alignment. The energy has to be perfectly flowing between them, and then you can talk to the other pyramids 
or warp between Earth and Mars. Uh, there are pyramids on Mars. There's a lot of um, debates on, you know, existence of pyramids, pyramids on Mars. So the speculation as to why they built them, uh, as my, my speculation, is that they really just need a place to control the, the authority of the empire, regardless of the technology. That part doesn't matter. They need to be able to tell people inside of these temples are the gods. You go in there if you want something, if you, your village is in trouble. And, um, and the simulated deities in these pyramids would talk back to them, tell them what they want from them. You know, you're my subject now, I'll help you. And then they would get anything they want. Um, this pyramidal empire, one way or another, was able to maintain itself for, um, for uh, I think, like 1,100 years. I don't have that number up with me right now. Long time. Um, on all official accounts, the, um, the three uh, kingdoms of Egypt lasted many hundreds of years. So the reason is because their technology has to have been so convincing that it worked on the average person. And the reason that it failed has to have been that the technology sort of no longer worked. So why would the technology no longer work? Well, there was an event in 1492 BCE, where, which we call the exodus from, um, from Egypt. I call it the exodus from the entire pyramidal empire, because I believe it was on this event that the whole world all at once got to see that this deep state empire does not represent the deities, the gods in the sky. They couldn't predict that Venus would be ejected from Jupiter, as mythology suggests, and they couldn't predict any of the plagues that would befall Egypt over hundreds of years, nor could the kingdom do anything about them to avert the plagues. So their authority was waning, according to the population. This is the real nature of the Exodus. The Exodus was not a migration, or it would have been called a migration. Um, the only people who actually left the pyramids were the deep state themselves. And they left because they no longer worked. They had to retreat back into the deep place of the earth, all those places they want to keep secret from us that are the best, best places to live, probably in the hollow earth, but also probably in other planets. I won't get to that right away. So to jump ahead, the deep state, or sorry, the, the exodus event from the pyramidal empire doesn't actually migrate anyone. They, they kind of stay in the pyramids, but the pyramids have no authority, and they're sort of free. The, uh, until the Prometheus event, they're free, but they're experiencing cataclysm. And then after the Prometheus event, they're free. There's no more cataclysm. They have all the technology and everything. To get to the modern time, there's a dispute over when modern history starts. We see all these events, and we sort of get dates for when they all happen. But when, when they ended, when does modern history start? Modern chronologists will tell you that the periods of the Roman Empire, zero, uh, eight, sorry, uh, from 1 eight, uh, BC to 1 AD, that period existed for, th for 2,000 years. And in reality, I believe that um, the end of the Prometheus event was the, was the beginning of human history. And the beginning of human history actually started in the 11th century AD. The reason I feel this way is because Fomenko says so. Anatoly Fomenko. He's the, uh, the Russian statistician who essentially was able to prove this using the Bibles as they exist, but also the, the, early, the early existing versions of the Bibles. And he was able to show that a great deal of what happened before the 11th century is not only a lie, but is also events after the 11th century or during that have been uh, reproduced, phantom copies of them, names changed, locations changed, the same event over and over the Crusades versus the Trojan War, et cetera. And, but, and his assertion made a lot of sense to me. Um, it actually makes a lot of sense that 
there should be a period where everything just starts, including the debates over religion, where everyone's trying to figure out what, what just happened with capitalism? What does it mean? And what do we believe about it? Um, this would not have lasted 2,000 years, as modern chronologists say. Um, as the new chronologists say, this probably started in the 11th century. Um, that's when the cataclysm ended and everyone started debating everything. You had two influences. You had the deep state who kept telling everybody that, you know, uh, the invisible God is punishing them for their sins and they have to respect their authority. Then you had the alternate, um, the alternate uh, perspective, which is that um, humanity is free and, you know, we don't have to listen to any authority. Um, today we have both perspectives, Gnosticism and authoritarian religions. Just to get one, I'm going to say next. You brought up Anatoly Fomenko, and I had the question written down: uh, what you what you think of Tartaria? So, where does Tartaria fit into this equation for you? Do you think that that is separate and just Fomenko's theory, or do you think that fits into this pyramidal empire and the Promethean age? And let's talk about modern age. Um, that that is a great question. Where is Tataria? Um, Eastern Europe, right? Northern and including China. If that is how the world looked back then, then that's great. That's, that is the official history. But if something had happened to change the world map and then they, they lied about it, covered it up, what they would have said is that we're, we had the same world map going all the way back to origin story. Now, this doesn't seem to be the case, according to Anatoly Fomenko. He says that something happened in the American Siberian um, continents. They uh, changed, they broke up. And what used to be Mu, continent of Mu, suddenly became the west coast of America and the east side of Europe, uh, this Tartaria region, South China. That's what he says. Nobody accepts that. Everyone says we would have known about, we would have heard about that. Um, so let me just... Um, so let me just go back a little bit to get to that event. Let's go back uh, 900 years, uh, 11th century. The the fight over over what had happened during cataclysm, and the fight over the future. Should we believe in gods or not? The Gnostics said no. We should focus on dualism. Everything is is um, the nature of everything. You know, is good versus evil, positive versus negative, that kind of thing. And um, and the central authority said no. That's not the case. We want you to believe in our Old Testament narrative. They kept pushing Old Testament narrative, but they did it in a selective way to their most loyal subjects, family first, that kind of thing. And that's where you have the beginning of the Cathar suppression story. Cathar suppression is not controversial. It's definitely happened between 11th and 13th centuries. It is completely overlooked by historians. I mean, I didn't hear about it in school. I think I should have. Um, this one event seems to line up really well with the kind of argument I'm trying to describe here, two sides, two major competing influences that are completely different. And they did collide. What I speculated, what I've read from Fomenko and others, is that the origin of the of Christianity, the Jesus story, comes from the Cathar suppression. Right in the midst of the suppression, um, you had this one guy who um, he's got caught in the middle of both sides. Uh, on one side, he seems to be of royalty, he was he was raised, you know, of stature, and he got to look at some of this. It's a it's a really exclusive text. They don't get, you know, not everyone gets to see it. There was no printing press, and the Bibles and so forth that were printed were very 
well protected. They're they're huge actually, and they had chains on them and stuff. Um, so to read these things, to actually look at the literature, to get to know what happened in the origin story was exclusive for privileged for rich people. Apparently, this Jesus figure was one of those guys, but more importantly, he had a sister or companion or wife or whatever you want to name it. I say twin sister because that's what it looks like. Um, Mary Magdalene, who may have been named something else. Um, I think it's Catherine because you got the Cathars and no one can figure out what they're named after. Cathar means pure. Um, catharsis means to purify, specifically by fire, because that's what they did to them. And Catherine means pure as well. So regardless of the origin, that is the same name. Um, so these two people unmistakably have been so controversial in Christianity history. They are the Da Vinci Code that can unlock it all. That movie, that book, was all created for the purposes of, of redacting the controversy itself so that we overlook it so we don't think about it. But it, there's, there's some clues in there. And if you look at the more the real books that, you know, that Da Vinci Code obviously ripped off of, you'll see the real story is that um, Da Vinci and a bunch of other artists simply wrote, drew, drew down, painted events as they happened. They weren't coding anything. They were just saying, that's what I saw. You know, they're always holding hands. They're always together. Um, you know, Jesus and Mary. So um, that anyone thinks it's a code today, that's only because it's been redacted and hidden. Um, the real nature of this relationship was that a female was allowed to speculate on Old Testament literature. Uh, they wanted everyone to believe certain things, like the King David narrative. And, you know, the more they had other outside perspectives, male or female, doesn't matter, uh, they, the more they would realize that these perspectives were very phallocentric. They, they weren't appropriate for kids. They weren't appropriate at all. They were actually pretty lurid and, uh, you know, they, they, they weren't the kind of thing you want to pass down to kids, but they also weren't the kind of thing that tells you where we came from or what happened in the past. So these simple accusations against the Catholic Church, and they were becoming the Catholic Church at the time, uh, the Vatican, were so threatening to its core that they had to, they had to engage in this Cathar suppression. They had to wipe out as many of these Cathars as they could find um, to, to the point of publicly crucifying one of them in Istanbul, in a giant, um, in a castle they had there, three-layered castle, first Jerusalem. It was the original Jerusalem. They chose this location because it was on the northwest corner of Turkey. If you look at the map, you'll see that it's just a peninsula bridging the continents there. It's right in the middle of those two worlds. And it would be the point they would choose to get the most impact. They're trying to scare people to stop. You know, obviously burning hundreds of Cathars wasn't enough. They're trying the next thing. That location was chosen because it was safe to do that. They couldn't be invaded from you know, a rebellious group. They had three walls that couldn't be breached. They performed the crucifixion, Jesus and two other people, two other criminals. And they're suggesting that he was in between that range of criminality. Though, if you look closely, crucifixion is, has almost no, um, no evidence behind it, no actual literature. A lot of stories and a lot of, um, a lot of scare tactics, but not many events. This is like the one major event. And in addition to that, it's been fully redacted. The details have been hidden. One detail, for example, this character did not die. He, after the crucifixion was over, he was brought down, as was depicted in the paintings, and he went somewhere else. He kept on his life. The Catholic Church was hoping that this example would um, would sort of prevent people from you know, engaging in this religion in the future. But eventually they realized that this religion was spreading anyway. 
it had gone as far south as Palestine. It had, it had gone to the edges of all continents, actually, in various forms. Um, uh, the, uh, the Catholic Church would send out its spies in its first crusade. It's not really a crusade, the first one. It would send out its most rich, most loyal knights to go to these locations and say, report back, please. Tell us what you found. Um, they would go there and say, uh, these guys believe this, and we believe it too. We, we're totally bought by this stuff. They are so convincing. The Catholic Church couldn't believe that their own knights would do this. And it says right there in the literature that the church started inquisition against its own knights in the first crusade to ask them, what did, why do you believe in these heretics all of a sudden? And aren't you afraid of going to hell and all this stuff? So the nature of the inquisition began with the first crusade. And the second crusade was when they started actually taking, raising armies and spreading out there and trying to find these remaining Cathar spreads. They weren't really Cathars anymore. There are other things by then. They're um, blending with indigenous um, syncretic religions that they found. And what the Catholic Church was realizing was that these religions had been missing more or less some of the major aspects of the origin story. They were just sort of giving it to them, this whole origin story. If they were to just receive the Old Testament, they're just going to take it and create their own Old Testament religion. The Catholic Church had no choice but to create endless crusades to wipe out anyone that would do anything like that. And we have this tremendous violent history of the Middle, East, uh, sorry, Middle Ages as a result of this simple need to prevent competition within Catholicism. So as you can see, the whole nature of Christianity has been covered up. It's been turned into something else. The idea of um, this character, who I believe his name was Brabus, and I believe that he and his sister were born in the Crimea. I'm pretty sure that the Russians are well aware of this and they believe this stuff. He was... He was not um, a savior. He was not a, um, a prophet. You know, none of those attributes were actually associated to his story. Those attributes actually already existed in other stories, in the Egyptian mythology and most of the other deep state religions, including the Greek mythology and Roman, you'll find the, the Messiah deity and that we're supposed to worship that Messiah deity. So all they did with the Jesus story was they took the most popular um, commoner who caused this spectacular revolution and put and merged it with their existing deity that everyone's supposed to worship. It's not, it's not a big surprise, and we get modern-day Christianity from that, including the crucifixion worship. Now, the crucifixion is important, of, not just for that event, but also because it represents the only archetype in history that is not natural. Every other archetype that we see was something you saw in the sky, but not the cross. Never saw the cross in the sky, ever. That is because the cross is too perfect. It represents a perfect 90 degree angle. Um, you won't see it in nature. Um, <clears throat> more importantly, the cross represents the zodiac. And the zodiac, I've come to understand, is the true religion of the deep state. They are calendar worshipers. They like usury. They like schedules. They like to schedule warfare. They like conscription. Everything is about scheduling. Um, but that point aside, when they crucified Jesus, they sort of merged the zodiac religion with the, um, the pagan religion, the, the dualist Gnostic religion, which is also sort of becoming a sun worship religion. And why was why did people worship the sun? Because after the Prometheus event, um, they realized that um, all of those gods that had made events in the past were actually lesser gods to the sun itself. They started saying the sun is the greater god, which violated the Old Testament uh, commandments. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to say the sun is greater than Saturn so on and so forth. So 
You see the, the makings of our modern disputes today, all in that little period between the 11th and 13th century. During that time, I'm convinced that they created modern Christianity, modern Judaism, and modern Islam. And that there's almost nothing separating any of these religions except for that Jews are allowed to do usury and everyone else isn't. And so to, to perform usury in countries that ban it, back in the day, everyone banned it, what you have is the crypto Jews. These guys converted from Judaism to Christianity, to, Muslim, to Islam, and kept their privilege of usury ordained by the central church authority. This is, uh, you can look up crypto Jews on um, Wikipedia, not controversy. And it all started in 1666 with the failed messianic prophecy of what were the Jews back then. After that prophecy failed, that the guy that gave the prophecy um, converted to Islam and retained his usury privileges. Uh, that process itself actually created the religion of Islam, allowing regular people to join it. And in the Quran, the Quran itself was designed specifically in, the, in that fourth century period between the 13th, 13th century, 17th, to allow people into the Old Testament religion, absent of all of the privileges that come with that religion from usury on down, and in the um, and have and you have to be in compliance with all of the old requirements, baptism, circumcision, uh, belief in the resurrected deity, all of those things. Um, if you if you find the deep state's presence, you will find circumcision. You'll find all those things. So um, these religions, it took them a long time to create them, a long time to get popular. They weren't ever popular. It was hard to spread them. They had to actually do these crusades, these inquisitions. They had to spread them to the new world when the new world happened. Um, they had trouble in the new world. Apparently, they found a lot of resistance in the 16th century. Um, the so-called Native Americans would not accept the church's authority, and um, a whole new plan would have to be made. Uh, so I'll jump ahead to what happened in England in the uh, 17th century. For whatever reason, the city of London burns down in one night, ending the bubonic plague, and the bubonic plague had killed 75,000 people, suddenly it ended, the burning of the entire city of London, which has crazy paintings of it, um, nobody died. You can look up on Wikipedia. Nobody died. They say allegedly maybe three people died. It sounds really weird to me. After this one event, England would completely change. It would not be the same kind of England that we knew from Arthurian legends. It would be the, the uh, modern Puritan vers uh, versus um, Protestants, you know, that whole thing, the... Uh, the modern Catholics that we know today would come straight out of England. Um, they would be very different from the Spanish Catholics, the ones that sort of spread to the New World and created Mexico and retained a lot of their indigenous um, belief systems, like the Day of the Dead um, cer ceremony down in Mexico. But in England, you had full conformity to this new deep state religion, this Christianity. And you got people that were, that were scared um, that the devil was actually a presence on this planet and that the devil was coming on certain dates, like, like 1,666 on, on September the 6th. That's when the city of London burnt. It said so in the King James Bible that this would happen. It said over and over in the 1611 edition that we need to look out for that number. You know, watch out, look out. So when it finally came, people weren't all that surprised. It looked like the devil had destroyed London. So going forward, everyone that came out of England to the New World, all these Puritans and so forth, were extremely loyal to this deep state invisible god belief system because something crazy had happened to their 
to their country in England. Um, so I'm starting to understand that the people today, uh, people who basically still absolutely believe in those kind of things that that gods intervene in our personal affairs and they punish the entire civilizations, um, they do so not because someone told them to or because of a book. It's because if you look at the last couple hundred years, some crazy things have happened on this planet that nobody has been able to define yet or describe. Um, I have been able to look at that uh, perspective from my Mars theory. I believe that Mars has is part of our origin story. It was there all along. It had people on it in the beginning, according to Norse mythology. And if it might have been unliv unlivable in the past, it certainly wasn't unlivable after the cataclysmic period ended. During that period, you had humans who lived on Mars, and they basically were forced to learn technology as well, but for different reasons, for scarcity reasons, lack of wire, lack of resources. Those guys had every interest in, in controlling affairs on Earth. Whether or not that's true, assuming it's true, we have to expect at least one major interplanetary intervention, if that is the case. And that event, well, we've seen many actually events that have not been explained, but one major event, according to, well, this is my speculation, but according to historians, uh, the defeat of Napoleon is still quite unexplained. In fact, most, the, most historians will defer to the Battle of Waterloo, which did not matter. It happened after Napoleon had already been captured, sent to an island, escaped from the islands, and came back in the power for 100 days and was defeated. That Battle of 2015 didn't, I'm sorry, eight, that Battle of 1815 did not matter. 1814, his invasion of Russia is the one that mattered. If you look at the official stats, Napoleon marched an army of almost half a million soldiers of Europe into Russia, into Moscow, and lost all of them and retreated with only 10,000 soldiers in a matter of months. This is not a dispute. Now, what happened? Well, the historians say that it was desertion, desertion, desertion lack of resources, and of course, the winter. But we're talking about people that crossed the Alps. You know, these, these men had crossed the Alps with Napoleon. These were rugged Europeans that knew their territory. They would not venture forward if they knew that they would lose something. So there's a big missing piece in this Napoleon defeat here. And my team and I have actually found that in the period between the 19th century and 20th century, in that region, the Tataria, there are countless events which still have not been explained. In the Polynesian islands, you have these volcanoes that were so massive that the outpouring of the magma reached the continents around them and changed all of the Polynesian islands or created them. You have this Tunguska event, which was alleged to have happened in uh, 1912, right before World War I broke out, which is really you know, a time you can't really trust very much. And this event, just like the city of London, nobody died, even though thousands of miles of trees were flattened and buildings were destroyed. And according to witness testimony, the, the sky ripped in half and changed color. And he saw a pillar of fire, the same as the Prometheus event. So I don't really know what happened. And I have a lot of speculations. And as my team keeps finding these events for me, I can at least very much speculate that something terrible had happened in that period to destroy the continent of Mu. That entire civilization there was destroyed along with Napoleon's army, who had recently conquered the eastern territory of that continent, which contained um, Moscow. So the eastern side of Mu became the US West, and the western side of Mu became Europe. And the eastern side of Mu, for the Napoleon's invasion of 
Russia, if you look at the map of the invasion, uh, you'll see that Napoleon also had an incursion into America. When, when Napoleon came to America, he went straight through the middle from Louisiana, straight up into the north, and sold a few, a few towns there, and then apparently was defeated by the British and left. But if you think about that region as being part of Mu, and it hasn't been combined yet, then actually what you're really talking about is Napoleon having invaded the eastern side, the eastern side of Mu, and the western side of Mu at the same time. So it looks like something was happening there where Napoleon, the Napoleonic Wars were the key to all of it. And the defeat of Napoleon can only be explained by some unleashing of an influence that has been covered up. Because if they don't cover it up, then we're going to say, oh, that's what happens. And then the world we know today you know, would not exist. Let me explain why. Uh, Tsar Alexander I, who was the one who was fighting Napoleon, had to downplay the significance of his defeat afterwards. You can look in literature, it says that he was trying to convince all of his subjects that there was not a divine intervention that defeated Napoleon. He said that there wasn't when the people were Jewish mostly surrounding the Moscow Kremlin, which was Jerusalem too at the time. Um, they did believe that God on their side had defeated Napoleon. Uh, they didn't see any way that they could have won that war and they won. So as the Tsar had to downplay that event, uh, other people in the world sort of reacted to the reality of it. It doesn't matter what kind of intervention this is. It is clearly above us and beyond us. You know, you can call it what you want, but this influence is real. So for the last 200 years, people have been looking for this invisible influence to come and hit us in the worst moments, hit the guys that should not have lost, people like Napoleon who should not have been defeated, and of course, people like Hitler who should have won. I'm only saying should have won on militaristic terms. I'm saying these armies generally do not go to war if they don't think they can win. And when Hitler invaded Europe and invaded Moscow, he pretty much assumed that he could win too. So go ahead and look at that event. When Hitler was defeated in Moscow, was that, an inter was that a divine intervention? Well, nobody says so. But if you look at, at, at how, how the, the stats went down, he wasn't defeated by anything less but than a divine intervention. That, um, there was a snowstorm that was completely record-breaking at that time that his army was there. It hit Moscow at negative 42 degrees when no such temperature had ever been reached. And this temperature was simply low enough to disable all of the planes of the Luftwaffe. This one event, this one snowstorm, completely defeated Hitler's army and completely allowed his enemies, who had prepared for this event, I'm not saying that they knew it was coming, but for whatever reason, the Russian planes could withstand temperatures lower than 40 degrees. It's not that hard. You just build hotter engines, but they, they sort of knew this was going to happen, and they totally took out Hitler's army in a very short time, and then the rest of Europe as well. They bond the supply lines. They, they intimidated America into, into joining them. You know, we didn't want to. We were non-interventionist at the time. And, um, and you could sort of say that Hitler was sort of defeated by this snowstorm. But at the same time, you could say that Napoleon was defeated by this, this, um, this uh, shock event. We're sort of talking about elemental warfare here. So regardless of- also, oh, I'm, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, wouldn't you say it was also, I mean, pretty moronic in general just for Hitler to even consider attacking two fronts because like if I'm not mistaken right he tried to take on two fronts at the same time regardless right, um, of the elemental you know what you're what you're saying to us now but it didn't seem like he was going to win regardless 
Yeah, the, the version that they gave us, was, and they by they I mean the people who defeated him, uh, they posed the war as a two-sided war where everyone's just kind of going at it. And uh, I would say that it was more like the Napoleonic Wars, where Napoleon was sort of carving um, through the world. He went to Spain, he went everywhere, he went to Egypt first. Um, he discovered the origin story in Egypt, he brought it back. He did all kinds of stuff and convinced people, person by person, that he essentially represented an alternate history that's just as legitimate. And you guys can all just follow this one too, and we'll be different. We won't be authoritarian, get rid of usury, get rid of Catholic Church. People really bought into it. However, they said, look, Napoleon, you got to win the war, right? You actually have to win the war. And, you know, on the ground, they said, we don't see any reason why we won't win this war because it more or less is an ideological war. Our soldiers are, are you know, ecstatic about this. They think the God's on their side, our soldiers, Napoleon's soldiers, and the enemy. They think that Napoleon is this huge threat to their ideology. They are scattered and they don't, they don't know what to think of it. And they're just trying to pretend Napoleon wasn't around. So you look at it on those terms, Napoleon was an ideological revolution. And the only reason that he failed was because he actually lost that final battle. So Hitler, in the same grounds, could have been exactly the same ideological revolution. Hitler was offering the Europeans an alternate um, religion, so to speak, all the way from the origin story to belief system without the chains and the yoke of the Catholic Church as they are known, because they had a pretty bad reputation. Um, and people bought into it. They said, sure, Hitler, um, we will go with this whole Norse mythology, this Asian resurrection thing. Um, because it, you know it's just as true as anything else, but you got to win the war, right? That's what the whole thing was. So when he went to Moscow, it didn't seem to him like he would lose the war, because at that point the Germans had high technology. Um, they just—I don't think that they realized what their enemies were willing to do to them, and how how dirty they were willing to fight. Go ahead. Do Do you think that there's something significant about? the like geographical location of Moscow where both of these armies get to almost this I guess this line of area and then they get hit by this sort of divine intervention there right yeah so I, I speculate that that is an interplanetary intervention by people on Mars they've been involved in our affairs this whole time of course they have been uh, they're connected through technology pyramids telepathy telepathy is actually a big one when, when Mars and Earth are in proximity or very close to each other, magnetospheres are overlapping, telepathy is possible to communicate between. So during this time, it, there's every indication that people on that planet, humans, were trying to influence Earth affairs here. Now, what is the most powerful thing that they could do to this planet? They could actually create uh, something like the Taguska event if they want to. It would be very hard to do, it would take a lot of time, but they would push a bunch of matter into the into space to orbit the Earth, and then heat it up with a laser for a long time until it became powerful enough that it became plasma and seeped into the Earth. That energy would get sucked through the continent. Whatever continent that is, based on the periodic rotation, would be destroyed. But also, giant caverns would form within it. The very center of Mu, what I thought I think the very center of Mu is, today could possibly be Arizona. We see a huge Grand Canyon right there in the middle of Arizona. There was no reason to assume that it was made by water, because if you look at it from space, it forms a, uh, a spiral from both directions, not, not a, not a um, channel like um, water makes, but a spiral. Uh, 
if you look at electric scarring on Mars, you see the same spirals. And if you look at um, the Sapphire Project and their um, investigation, you'll see that they have reproduced these exact spiral electric scars uh, in laboratories. So now, before this cataclysm, would there be a lower ocean level? Would there be more land mass around the area that we see uh, as Arizona? And do you think that there's less room in the Pacific Ocean? I mean, because from what I'm gathering, it seems like there's a fair bit of interaction between Asia and America before the Bering Strait seems to be, you know, disintegrated. Right. Well, we only have clues here. Um, one clue is that when Cortez went to America in the 15th century, he made a map of uh, California, and it was an island. No one can explain why today. They all call it a mistake. He made a mistake. But you look at the map; it's detailed. It was, you know, he went and made that mistake. So, the uh, that location, we don't know what it looked like. And after it broke up, you're right. There was like all this space left over in uh, the Pacific Ocean. Some people speculate that you could find ruins down there. One big problem is that we're not really sure what the world map looks like right now. We assume it's the one that they taught us in school, but there's a lot of reasons to assume that they're they're lying for geopolitical reasons. I mean, for example, if we are very close to Africa, then we would just fly over there right now, you know, but if we think that Africa is a thousand miles away, then we won't, stuff like that. Um, um, <clears throat> to describe what, what happens there, I would just say that the continent definitely did sink into the ocean but if we accept hollow earth theory, we're talking about a, a shell of the earth that's about 800 miles wide. And these continents are essentially floating in space in these shells separated by water. Sure, there's, there's um, land masses underneath the, the ocean connecting them as well. But when these land masses are severed by such an event, these continents will become free floating and they will do the things that geologists said happened over billions of years. Subduction and all that, it will occur within a couple of years or right away rather than over billions of years. So we, we definitely see subduction on the west coast of America. We see the Andes formed rapidly. We see also um, weird uh, mountains on South America. They seem to have been kind of brushed up against the side of the continent on the west side for some reason. Um, we see the, well, let me jump conspiracies here. We see the mud flood conspiracy. Are you guys aware of that one? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this has not been explained yet, but it seems like a whole bunch of mud covered up the east coast of America at some point in the past. Um, you know, this could have been for any reason, but it seems to match the time period where the early White House, the first version of it, was actually covered up by this mud flood. If that was the creation of America, 1776, did that have anything to do with the breaking up of the Syrian American continent in 1775, according to Anatoly Fomenko. So you see these dates are very interesting. We're seeing a lot of stuff happen between 1775 and 1815. I don't know if Napoleon was defeated in 1812, 1815. I think that they could have played with these dates anytime in the last hundred years, especially um, after World War II. During, after that war, you got a lot of literature burnt, a lot of uh, countries taken over by force. And World War One. I. I should really say World War One is when the plan was unleashed, and two made sure that it worked. And after that, everyone believed in England's version of history. Um, that was that. Um, everything was Latin and English. Um, so uh, we don't know for sure these events, but it's really weird how they do line up like this. Um, today, in modern times, we're trying to figure out um, why people like older generations 
seem to have fallen so hard for religions. I have all kinds of speculations there too, but one of them is because they're just being reasonable. Recent history shows that no matter who you are, Hitler, Napoleon, Trump, something is just going to happen and you're not going to win. You're going to lose and then they're going to go after you and then they're going to take everything you've created and turn it into something bad. Um, they're so used to this happening for so many hundreds of years that when it, if it, if it was to ever stop happening, they wouldn't even realize that they don't expect it to ever stop. Um, in my times, it's hard to say where we're at with all of this, but I think the last 200 years really clues us in to the fights that we're having today. I don't think people used to fight about religion four or 500 years ago, 600 years ago. Uh, religions were syncretic. If you want to know about something, you go to somebody who's learned. And therefore, what the deep state went after was knowledge in general. When they created their whole Saturn worship cult or religion or whatever you want to call it, it's not really religion. It's, it's all of the knowledge we have today. Mortarboards even. You go to a university and they put black squares on their heads when they graduate. The idea of graduation is something that the Catholic Church came up with a long time ago. They graduate you into a doctrine of belief that you may not accept if you were to receive it too early. You have to be ready to receive it. So they put us through all of the patterns that they've developed for 3,000 years now, only patterns that work because they've done them for so long. They've trial and errored them, and they've come up with these systems, hymns, um, you know, uh, ch church um, masses, and all, and all of the rest, just because they really work. So, um, yeah, open up to questions there. Yeah, Ari, I mean, damn, this is all very profound stuff, and you're bringing to mind a lot of different avenues that we can go down. I mean, obviously, we'd love to have you back. My first question that sure. I have on the top of my mind is human beings, right? Are these yeah. deep state actors, are these pyramidal empire actors are they all human? Is there any, you know, Anunnaki, alien, Nephilim? Where does that mm -hmm. play into you? Do, you? do you do you think that it's interdimensional? Do you think that there's aliens? Are they not even in the equation? Is it all humans? How do you factor that in? Um, <clears throat> due to the, the origin story, I've basically speculated that aliens could not have visited during it. They would have had to make it through many layers. Their vehicles would have been subjected to uh, shifting energy, energy from positive to negative and had they arrived back then, people would be like, hey, what's up? They had, wouldn't have had anything to learn from them either. They wouldn't have been too surprised either. So I would say that if there was any kind of alien influence in the origin story, it was minimal, negligible. It's something we shouldn't really worry too much about. We were creating and inventing everything just fine back then, and we could do so today if we were allowed to. There's something wrong, right? We're not allowed to, like, say, invent water engines for cars or batteries with infinite capacity charges that never die. These things do exist, but they say, you know, so um, who could do so something like that? Um, someone like that has to be very deeply infiltrated into our society. And at the very simple, for the very simple argument that you can't infiltrate if you're not human, I don't think we're dealing with anything but humans in this universe at all. I don't think that you'll find anything else. Now, what you will find, though, is humans that are so different from us that you might as well Describe them as you have scaly skin, green skin, cold bloodedness, uh, you know, being giants, being tiny, um, even being etherical or having some kind of advanced energetic properties. But in the end, I do believe that all of these things will be explainable, but also that all of these entities are going to be human in the end. 
Now, why are they human? Um, well, this has everything to do with how life is created. If you want to accept that life is created through DNA, through instructions in mitochondria, then that's okay. But um, it's, it doesn't explain a heck of a lot that's happened. And yes, it would have taken billions of years. The In the short cataclysm, where you have life just sort of bursting into existence, we need a totally different explanation from DNA. We need to have something where life will form, even if there isn't another creature there of the same kind, where, you know, a dog will give birth to a cat, that kind of thing. And the only way that kind of thing is possible is if the, if the, the uh, so-called DNA of that next animal already exists. The, the instructions to create already exist, not in DNA, but in memory. Where? In the ether. The ether of all energy that goes through all planets that exists in all life forms. This ether was a lot more abundant back in the origin story days. And when you have that kind of energy pulsing through a planet, yes, I do believe that that energy can create life spontaneously. Every type of life form you can imagine, as long as that life form um, can grow from, from nothing. Not every kind of creature out there can grow from nothing, but every creature we know today um, grows from single cells. And some, some uh, creatures like, I don't know, dragons, for example, would have to have alternate explanations. Their bodies really don't line up to the kind of growth patterns we see in other animals. So there you go. We have a limiting factor of how life can, can, can grow. It can only possibly form into a human or, you know, a dog, extroverted, it, cat, introverted, you know, whatever the nature of, of the necessity is. And that, that's the only way it can be. In an abundant world where everything is great, you will find every kind of life. In a scarce world, we're kind of in now, you'll only find life that can exist. So... Um, I, I really don't think that if we had seen, if, if there were other kinds of creatures out there, um, that I think we would have seen them by now. But as far as creatures ruling us, they're all human. All right. I'm yeah. Sure and, on that one. and that that brings to mind so much. I mean, your description there of creation as it pertains to this etheric kind of akashic record right is what i've heard right. also described as yeah man so, that's that's really profound the other thing that came up during uh what you mentioned was mars right do you think yeah. that these human beings on mars are communicating with telepathy but also engaging with us through these what we would call ufos do you think there's anything to do with you know these saucers we're seeing in the sky and those possibly mm -hmm. being like a mind craft uh operated by these martian people well um the, their final goal is infiltration they want us to build their technology without letting us know about it you know where our military is lying to us that kind of thing that's exactly what they got and they don't want to expose themselves very much at all uh, they've they've had instances in the past. Roswell was a crashed disc. The army had it, and then they they lied about it. Um, the Battle of L.A. was an exposed flying saucer above L.A. It was something. I mean, it looked like a flying saucer, um, and they shot at it for two hours, and it didn't get damaged. There's some kind of advanced technology there. So every time they they expose themselves, something really bad happens to their plan. Their whole plan falls apart. They can't expose themselves anymore. The ones we're seeing today are totally. Uh, under their control, but they're us. They're our, our corporations and our, you know, like Lockheed Martin up to up to, no good. And yeah, they built a lot of stuff, and they keep it from us, and they use it for surveillance mostly. They're not spaceships. I'll tell you that much. You can't build a ship that goes into space. As soon as you try to go through the Earth electromagnetic field, the ship will endure that kind of destructive 
electrical influence that I mentioned earlier. And even if you're built for it, I'll give you one other clue here. Humans are kept alive by the earth itself. The ether of the earth, it's a very powerful, subtle gradient energy does keep us alive. And if we were to leave it, then we wouldn't be alive. If we were to get close to that, that electromagnetic field, or so-called um, yeah, Van Allen belts, if we get mm -hmm. close to the Van Allen belts, then you'll, you'll feel like dying, basically. This, uh, this is what the first female astronaut said happened to her when she went into space in the 50s, I think it was. Um, and they had the, the ship went actually up when it shut down. You can, you can read about it. So um, for a lot of reasons, they have a very hard time reaching Earth. And they don't want to come here and be exposed. And so this whole plan is very slow. They want to sort of get here by their means. I believe that CERN is a lot more of the, the focal point of their traveling to Earth. They get here safely through a, a kind of a huge infrastructure that can never fail. And it's very hidden. No one, you know, sees their transmissions, their, their you know, passings. Yeah, man. I mean, there is so much to get into. I think we'll leave it there with just the, uh, you know, invitation back, of course. And also, I want all the listeners to know that they can go to Patreon, right? Because you've got this right. awesome new project on Patreon. Uh, can they find it under Paradigm Threat? They just yep, it's right there on the front page. Yep. Awesome. So you go to ParadigmThreat.net and check out all of the awesome awesome infographics and uh text written by ari himself with links to all sorts of different sources ari certainly isn't shy with his bibliography for those who are skeptical you can go and see all the places where you know ari's pointing to from this you know perspective with all the different people that are adding to it i mean from the first guy you mentioned david talbot to all of the other players in well, this. Cornell. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I am amazed, man. I think it's going to take a few listens to digest mm -hmm. exactly what we talked about here. And yeah, I just want to leave the last few minutes to you to, you know, plug whatever you want to plug and uh, close it out. I have a, uh, yeah. Go ahead, I, have go a I have a final question for him. Uh, at the end of your uh, interview with uh, Greg on the Higher Side Chats, you we're hoping for people to come out with kind of kinks in your theories. Has there yes. been anyone to come forth and kind of hash it out with you since then? Yeah, I'll uh, mention one guy. Um, he said, I looked at your website. I love everything you said, but then the Mars thing and the tripods, I, I looked, where did, how did you get that from? And he kind of, <laughs> got, kind of got upset at me because he felt that I had cited a lot of my, my um, citations rather well until that point. I had nothing there. And so my response was, you're absolutely right. I have nothing there. I have, I have a science fiction book, the first science fiction book, which I think might have been redaction from a real event. And that's not much of evidence yet. But we're also talking about maybe the most covered up, possibly the most covered up event in all history, you know, if it was a real event. Mm -hmm. But uh, other than that, I've actually been surprised. I'm really I'm expecting that one guy to just show up and say, I think you got this part wrong totally. And instead, my, my team keeps giving me things that seem to be reinforcing the explanation of this, I've been thinking about this a lot because I know I'm an amateur at this. I'm not that good. It has to be that I'm simply stumbling upon the origin story history as it exists by the people that are taught it intact. And intact, of course, every last thing in this world lines up perfectly, understand everything. We're living in a world where that is the case and the decryption has kept it from us. So, you know, it's just like, I really do hope somebody comes in and says, I know what this is. I know what that is. I know literature. I've studied the books. Because my, I personally haven't. And I'm going off of a lot of the conclusions that a lot of these authors have made. Yeah. Awesome, awesome.
Well, this I want to is- say before we end that this was some of the heaviest stuff I've ever heard <laughs> in my entire life. And uh-huh. honestly, connects a lot of dots. It's- yeah. Thank you. Big time, man. Ari, the. I love uh, the work. I absolutely love it. Yeah. The Thank you. I really appreciate that. Cosmology, I really got to give it up to you because this stuff seemed really unattainable and uncomprehensible. Right. And you're putting it in a timeline, you're putting it along with visuals. And that is essential. I think that is exactly what we need on the internet. Like Greg said, your website kind of reminded him of like old school conspiracy uh, net. And, uh, and yeah, man, it's, it's really an honor to have you on the show. So thank you for listening to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Please check out ParadigmThreat.net and stay tuned for a future episode with my man Ari here because this was mind-blowing and Mikey hasn't said a word and I'm surprised because <laughs> I think Mikey's going to have the best questions next time you're on, Ari. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, Mark is bananas. Crazy. Okay, this guy's losing his mind. I'm Don't listen crazy to him. for feeling so lonely. Follow us on patreon.com slash nftic. That's patreon.com slash nftic. Peace out.